replacement theology is so dangerous, so foolish, and so unfaithful to the Word of God, and knowingly or unknowingly, it is fostering a spirit that Israel really does not matter, and that is going to lead to a profound, profound anti-Semitic spirit in the last days. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And we've been looking at the Revelation for several months now and are in chapter 12 of this 22-chapter book of the Bible. Today, in a message entitled, War in Heaven, Pastor Carl will begin examining verses 7 through 10, which outline a major conflict that will be taking place between the angels in heaven and the demonic angels of hell. As we begin, we'll review the events leading up to the supernatural war. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Last time when we were in the Revelation, nearly a month ago, we turned a corner in that we were in the second half of the parenthetical section of these trumpets. We have seen that the book is structured with three series of sevens seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, and that between the sixth and seventh seal, there is a pause of time where God gives us an interlude to show us what's going on. We saw between the sixth and seventh trumpet, the trumpets are found the first six in chapter eight, that there is once again an interlude where after chapters 8 and 9, where he records the first six trumpets, he pauses again in chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 to give us a picture of what's going on, but also a preview of what God is going to do. And so we're in the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. And of course, the future is big business, even in America. Billions of dollars will be spent this year alone on finding out the future, largely through the new age and the occult. Yet the Bible is clear that only God knows the future and only God can write about the future with accuracy. And of course, that's why when you preach the book of Revelation, typically people come who might not always come to church, and even Christians tend to come more faithfully because they want to know the future. And really, the Bible is the only book that tells us not only how it started, but how God will complete human history as we know it. In fact, one of the divine proofs for the inspiration of the Bible is that it is the only book that gives specific prophetic references hundreds of years before they happened. In the Old Testament alone, there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus, and every single one of those were literally actually fulfilled. Neither the Koran nor the Book of Mormon nor the Hindu Vedas or any other religious book you can think of rights of the future has prophecy that is literally fulfilled. Only God knows the future, and the only book that God wrote is the Holy Bible. And so we're coming to a very important chapter. In fact, if you don't understand chapter 12, much of what will follow in the Revelation will be very difficult to understand. So we're not going through it fast. We're going through it slowly. It's a very, very important chapter. I want to begin reading in verse 1, though we're going to pick up largely in verses 7 through 10, where we left off last time. 
Revelation 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, if we were to take a survey this morning and ask people what the devil is like, I'm sure we would find a wide range of opinions. Some would say that there's no such thing as a devil. And so in many liberal theological pulpits today, they will describe him and in university campuses across America as a fictional character, not as real. And so this picture is a reminder of a man recently who marched in a New York City parade that the devil is just a myth. He's some creature with horns and tails who goes around poking people with a pitchfork. Still others want to make the devil something that he is not. They perceive him to be some omnipresent creature to have more power than he really does, such that even heaven itself is threatened by him. At the other end of the spectrum, sometimes even Christian people underestimate his power, and they really don't understand what an evil foe and woe he is to the believer. Vance Havner, the great 20th century preacher now in heaven, said this, if the devil came to town in a body... You would not find him in a nightclub or a casino. You would most likely find him in some pulpit drawing his salary while denying his existence. I am reminded of one such pastor who was preaching on the meaning of the word in, I-N. And he said that the word in does not necessarily mean inside, but rather close to or near or roundabout. And he went on to say that Jonah was not in the belly of the great fish, but he was just roundabout or near or close to that great fish. He went on to say that uh, the devil is in and around us, but he doesn't have the influence because he's not real at all. Well, one parishioner came up after the sermon and said, you know, that service gave me great comfort today, especially your exposition on the word in. He said, I realize that the three young 
Hebrew men in the fire were not literally in the fire, and so they were not burned because they were just in or around or nearby the fire. And that Daniel was not devoured by the lions because he was not literally in the lion's den, but nearby. But he said, the most comforting thing to me was you refuted what all these evangelical pastors say. Because you see, I do not believe the gospel that they preach. And at least if if I'm wrong, I won't be in hell. I'll just be in and around or nearby it. Well, listen, liberals do all kinds of mental linguistic gymnastics with words. But you can change the meaning of the word, but it doesn't change what God said. God spoke to communicate. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And the picture of Satan in the Bible is neither politically correct nor religiously correct in the way most Americans today even think. But what we find here in Revelation chapter 12 are some major, major truths about our foe, the evil one. And there are four dimensions to the career of Satan, two that are actually highlighted here in the 12th chapter, and the other two that we will study as we work through the Revelation. And so this morning, we want to think about Satan's two great falls. And again, if you don't understand this, and if you let your mind wander today, you're going to feel lost in some other sections of the Revelation. So I can't underscore how important this morning's message is. But the description that God gives of the evil one here is so realistic that you have to conclude this is either sheer nonsense and poppycock or it's the gospel truth. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, I want to begin this morning with Satan's past fall from heaven. Satan's past fall from heaven. Both his past fall and his future fall are highlighted in this text this morning. If you remember last time, I know it was about a month ago, but we looked at verse 4. But we had limited time, though. The sermon was an hour and ten minutes in this service. Uh, We had limited time, though, to expound it. And there are so many deep truths there, I don't want you to miss them. Look at verse 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, if you recall, when you come to the 12th chapter, the narrative changes again drastically. God again is giving us a behind-the-scenes view as he pulls back the curtain, as he does in each of these parenthetical sections, not just to show us what is going on, but also, especially here in the 12th chapter, to give us a preview of what is going to happen, which becomes very important to our understanding the events that he's going to write about. And in chapters 12 and 13, he introduces us to seven persons, seven personages, I suppose we could say, that are found later on in the Revelation. So as this chart, for instance, shows, here's four that are mentioned. There's actually five in this chapter, but four in these first 12 verses where we are today. There's the woman whom we have already identified, God identified it for us as the nation of Israel. There's the dragon who's the devil. There is the male child who's the Christ or the Messiah. And then there's Michael, the archangel. But here we find these seven personages. And we studied the first one in verse 1 of chapter 12. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must take place soon. And sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. 
So God gives this authoritative revelation to Jesus, not that he didn't already know it, but God wants to emphasize that Jesus owns it. And Jesus, in turn, gives it to his bondservants, that's us, and he gives it through John. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It's a single revelation that God gives through his servant. And if you will notice there in verse 1, the word communicated, if you have the NASB with footnotes, it will bring you out to the margin and give you an alternate translation that you could render it signified. And that, in fact, that's the way the New King James and the HCSB puts it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it. The first four letters, S-I-G-N, of signified. You could say he signified it. And so this book is given in symbols and idioms and pictures. It's full of symbols all the way through. And so one of the keys to understanding the revelation is to understand its symbols. But even then, you will see in Revelation itself, and this is a classic chapter that illustrates it, is that many of the symbols are illustrated and defined within the chapter itself or through Old Testament passages. There are 404 verses in the Revelation. 300 of those verses are direct allusions to the Old Testament. But what God does is he's describing through symbols, real people, real situations, real events. And so people have asked me, Pastor, do you interpret the Bible symbolically or do you interpret it literally? And the answer is yes, I do both. That is, if it's a symbol, then you interpret what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. And so in chapter 1, we saw that the seven lampstands, we are told, stood for seven literal actual churches. In Revelation 12, 3, we are reading this morning about the great red dragon, which describes his ferocious and his cruel nature. And so somebody might reason, well, that, that's only a symbol. That must mean there's no devil. No, you always ask, what does the symbol stand for? And he uses symbols to describe the devil, who he tells us is the great red dragon, to help us to understand what he is like. So please understand that a symbolic uh, interpretation does not do away with a literal belief in the Word of God. And so the first player, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, we studied that the woman is not the church because, as we will see, this woman gives birth to the male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The church does not give birth to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus forms and gives birth to his church. But this is a popular allegorical interpretation, which even in their allegorical approach is not consistent but there are many theologians today who are really, whether they know it or not, are fostering a spirit of anti-Semitism to say that God is done with Israel. We call it, among other things, replacement theology. Some, especially various cult leaders, have made the woman themselves. And so I gave you an example with Mary Baker Eddy, who said she was the woman with the divine revelation. The Roman Catholic Church says the woman here is Mary. But all three views that we studied in detail 
are rooted in a common error and that they allegorize the book of Revelation. Now, there's a number of allegories in the Bible, less than 10, not a huge number, but still, when it's an allegory, it's apparent that it's an allegory. And so if something is allegorical, you discern what the meaning of the allegory is, and then you literally believe it. Well, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of seven stars. Now notice, the great thing about Scripture is that when there's a sign involved, it's usually identified, and that's how the verse opens. A great sign, a semion mega. We get our word big or mega from the second word. A big sign is given. Well, what does the sign refer to? Well, again, this is an allusion to a number of places, especially in Genesis, Genesis 37, 9. You probably have that written out in your margin where God illustrates through a dream that he gives Joseph, Israel, with these stars and the sun and the moon. We learn this woman could only refer to the nation of Israel, and we're told she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. That takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where there God predicts that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, typically when we think of seed, of course, we think of the male, but God speaks of the seed of the woman because he himself would supernaturally provide the seed as the virgin birth would take place by the Spirit of God. And so the promised seed, the promised Messiah, is a picture, it's an imagery of how God would bring Christ into the world. And so it's not surprising that in numerous Old Testament passages that Israel is pictured as being in labor. Why? Because she is the woman. Paul in the New Testament writes that Jews are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Paul is reminding us that Israel gave us the Messiah. And it was not with ease that Israel brought the Messiah. Israel brought the Messiah through great pain and suffering. But in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus appeared. And so I hope you understand that Israel, the nation, is God-ordained, it's God-protected, it's God-blessed, and that's why in Genesis 12, God warns, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every Christian is blessed because of the Jewish people. Our Savior is a Jew. Every book in the Bible is written by a Jew, and God will culminate human history through the Jews, and so it's foolish for someone not to love and to pray and to bless Israel. And Israel needs to know that her best friends are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. And replacement theology, which is going so fast in this country, and I heard a speaker that I'm about ready, Rick, to take off the radio. Replacement theology is so dangerous, so foolish, 
and so unfaithful to the Word of God, and knowingly or unknowingly, it is fostering a spirit that Israel really does not matter, and that is going to lead to a profound, profound anti-Semitic spirit in the last days. Now, we're introduced to another sign that appeared in heaven in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, lest anyone think of this as pure fiction, or worse, yet they envision the devil with a tail and horns and a pitchfork waiting for someone to bend over, this is a sign. And in giving us this sign, he's not telling us what Satan looks like, but he's telling us what Satan acts like. And we need to know that he is, as verse 3 indicates, a great red dragon. And we don't have to know who the great red dragon is because God tells us, and the great red dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. And verse 3 says that this great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head were seven diadems. Now again, Scripture will interpret Scripture. John is giving us a snippet, a preview of things to come. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 13 and then again to the 17th chapter, we're going to learn that the horns are heads of various nations and they represent power and the heads represent wisdom, and seven represents, as we've already seen, a number of completion and fullness. And so there's coming a time, as Daniel the prophet underscores, where ten nations are going to come together in the final seven years of human history. They're going to form a coalition, and from that, one and eleventh nation will emerge from whom the Antichrist will lead these ten nations. We'll study that in Revelation 17, but if you can't wait till we get there, go back and listen to the sermon on Daniel 7, and it might be useful to you. So while Satan wars with Israel, by sneak preview and with greater detail to follow, we're going to see that the ultimate war is with the Lord Jesus. That brings us to verse 4. We're stage 1 of Satan's career, four stages to his career. Here's stage 1, verse 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, Lucifer was once a gorgeous, magnificent, beautiful angel in heaven, but he thought he was too wise and too wonderful and too mighty to be anything less than God. And he wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God. Now, we've already seen that stars in the Revelation and in the rest of the Bible can refer to the literal stars you look up and see in the heavens at night, or it's one of the idioms that God uses to refer to his angels, both holy and fallen. And it's kind of interesting because in Genesis 3, Satan suddenly shows up on the pages of Scripture. And you begin to think, well, where did he come from? You know that God can only create good, so how did this evil creature come 
into the human realm. Well, hold your finger here and go to the book of Ezekiel. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. And if you will turn to the right of the Psalms, you will soon come to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you will come to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel was what we call an exilic prophet. The prophets can be divided largely into three realms, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. And if you know at what time in Israel's history they're preaching, it will make a lot of sense. And of course, the book of Ezekiel is kind of a, he's a synoptic prophet of sorts, where he, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, tells us much about what is going to happen at the end of time. In either case, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we learn something about the fall of this one called Lucifer. The word Lucifer means a light bearer or a shining one or literally the sun of the morning. And the devil, of course, is called Lucifer before he falls. He has no natural light in himself. He's like the moon. The moon has no light in itself. It reflects the light of the sun. Even so, Satan was called and created to reflect God. Now, to set the context, as you read Ezekiel 28, the first 10 verses describe a king that was alive in Ezekiel's day. He's the king of Tyre. And Ezekiel is called to go and to preach to him and to warn him to take up a lamentation against him. A lament in the Bible is when someone, either God or God's people, are in grief over sin, over death. And so we have the book of Lamentations, as it's called in the Greek Bible, in the Greek Septuagint. Well, here in verses 1 through 10, Ezekiel is lamenting because this king claimed to be a god when, of course, he was only a man. But then in verses 11 to 19, the prophet Ezekiel described the king that in no way could refer to any human king. The king that described, that is described beginning in verse 13 appeared in the Garden of Eden. That wasn't true of the king of Tyre. In verse 14, this king has been called the anointed cherub. That's a term for an angel. This king had free access into God's holy mountain. That's a reference to heaven. Verse 15, it says that he was blameless or sinless from his creation. That could be said of no man. So beginning in verse 11, the prophet Ezekiel continues to speak about the king of Tyre, but he's looking past him to the power behind his throne. And what we find is that he reviews Satan's career, not only in the past in terms of how he fell, but what is going to happen in the end, which John is going to detail for us. And so in verses 11 and 19, there's no way it could refer to any human. It's just like when Jesus addresses Satan in Peter, and he says directly to Peter, Satan, get behind me. Well, even so, Ezekiel is addressing Satan, who's at work behind the king of Tyre. He's speaking of this ruler who was judged for his pride, and he was motivated by the exact same sin that made the devil the devil. And that's why theologians and pastors and commentators almost unanimously agree, though liberals in our day are dismissing it, But all the church fathers who followed after the apostles, they have one unanimous voice that this is a reference to the fall of Satan. How would they have known it? Not only by the simple reading of Scripture, but they would have understood that that's how the apostles taught it. Tomorrow we'll look at three ways the prophet Ezekiel describes this dark prince, namely Satan. 
You may want to listen again to today's message for both clarification and for edification so that you're able to give insight to people whom you may encounter that may have questions about the passage. It's easy to do. Simply download the Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android platforms or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV29. At Search the Scriptures, we are committed to drawing people into an ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to join us in this mission, why not become a Search the Scriptures supporter? Find out more online at searchthescriptures.org or by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue our look at the war in heaven, part of our study in the Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.